Welcome to The Healing Catalyst. I'm your host, Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh, and I know that Ayurveda can transform your life. How? Because it transformed mine. And the best part is, it's easier than you think. Your body has exactly what it needs to heal itself. All you need to do to enhance its healing power is to start practicing healthy routines, which I can teach you. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple, ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. Let's get started. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 22. Well, hello, my beautiful friends. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh, and this is the Healing Catalyst podcast, where my goal is to really help you catalyze the healing power that you have within you using the ancient wisdom of Ayurveda and other integrated medicine that is evidence-based to create optimal health in modern life. You know, in Ayurveda, every aspect of life either contributes to health or it contributes to illness. So it's not just about the food that you eat or the supplements you take. It's not just about the amount of meditation you're doing or how much you move your body. Yes, of course, all of that is important to our health, but our lifestyle and daily routines, our work and our passions, our environment and our relationships are also important. And all of these aspects of life will either add to health or they add to illness. And so as we continue with the intention for this month, Heal Your Mind, on today's episode, we're going to consider the importance of relationships on our mental health, specifically how boundaries, or more importantly, the lack of boundaries in relationships affect our mental health. Now, before I introduce you to my incredible guest, Terry Cole, I want to share a story with you about how this idea of boundaries in relationships showed up for me recently. As all of us have experienced, this past year has been challenging to say the least. The pandemic has literally turned everything upside down and inside out all over the world. And for me personally, you know, at the start of 2020, I was finally enjoying having an empty nest after my younger child, Isha, went off to college. I mean, I love my kids, but it was really nice for them to be launched and on their own. And then suddenly my empty nest wasn't empty anymore. Both of my kids, Isha and Zane, had 48 hours to pack up all their stuff and leave their college campus in California to come home. And so suddenly I found myself falling back into the old patterns of trying to take on all of the stuff that my kids were going through. The emotions of sadness of having to leave college. My older son, Zane, was actually a senior and would be graduating in a few months. And just the sadness and grief of missing graduation, of not having a graduation was really intense. Emotions that I was feeling deeply too. And, you know, they had so much fear and worry of 
not knowing what was happening in this world with a global pandemic that we had never seen before in our lifetime. And so again, I found myself in a place of a complete lack of boundaries with my kids and their emotions. Now, I've slowly been reestablishing those boundaries with the help of the work of my incredible guest, Terry Cole. A little bit about Terry. Terry is a licensed psychotherapist, and she's globally recognized as an expert in mindfulness, meditation, relationships, and well-being. And for over two decades, she's worked with some of the world's most well-known personalities from international pop stars and athletes to TV personalities and thought leaders and Fortune 500 CEOs. She's been featured as an expert therapist and master life coach on A&E's Monster In-Laws, TEDx, The Lisa Oz Show, among many others. In her much-anticipated first book, Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. Terry reveals a specific set of skills that can help you stop abandoning yourself for the sake of others, sort of like I was doing for my kids, without any of the guilt or drama, and instead get empowered to consciously take control of every aspect of your emotional, spiritual, physical, personal, and professional life. Now, as I've been reading Terry's book and literally binge listening to her podcast, The Terry Cole Show, I've been struck by how the idea of boundaries and relationships aligns so much with the Ayurvedic idea of toxins coming from relationships that then affects our health. Like literally how a lack of boundaries in relationships actually creates toxins that then show up as symptoms, illness, and disease. And so in my case, I can see how my lack of emotional boundaries with my kids when the pandemic started last year contributed to my symptoms of anxiety and back pain and fatigue and on and on and on. In my conversation with Terry, she shares her life-changing moment at her first AA meeting when she was in college. She tells us how her career started in the entertainment industry and how it then led to her career as a therapist. And she also shares how she discovered the power of becoming what she calls a boundary boss. Now, make sure you keep listening until the end of the episode because Terry shares a very powerful exercise to help you figure out if you have a lack of boundaries. And the one thing that you can do starting today to start reestablishing boundaries in your relationships to authentically express your preferences, your needs, and your limits so you can achieve optimal health. And be sure to download the resource that goes along with this episode. It's linked in the show notes for you. I am so thrilled to bring you my beautiful conversation with Terry Cole, the first of many I'm sure I'll have with her on my podcast. Terry, thank you so much for joining me today for my podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here. And I know this is so last minute. We did it. So I love it. We're so spontaneous like that, my friend. Yes, we are. We are. So Let's just jump into all things Terry Cole and your new book. We have so much to talk about, but you know, I really wanted to start, we were talking a little bit before we actually hit record, that I think that talking about our stories is really helpful to a lot of people that we help. And so I really want to know more about your story. I mean, there's all the things that we can Google about you, but tell us more about, you know, tell me about your story, like from the beginning, when you were a kid, whatever you feel like sharing. Oh, 
I was always very interested in people, right? Just people's stories. I was, even as a child, and I was always an empath and a highly sensitive person, even as a little kid. So I think that being, it makes sense that I eventually came around to become a psychotherapist because, I mean, I can remember earliest, I mean, literally being four years old and having an older kid in the neighborhood coming to me and wanting to tell me their woes, you know, and that started that young (laughs) in my life where I just have maybe one of those faces or maybe people know I'm empathic, but people always wanted to share what they were going through. Um, and I, my background, I, I was um, the youngest of, there's four, um, four daughters, right? So I have three older sisters. Wow. And the way that I came into the world is that my mother wasn't supposed to have another child because it was during a time when she had three cesareans already. And they didn't want her to, they thought she couldn't carry me to term. She was like, you're nuts. I'm still doing it. So, you know, the stories that I heard growing up, I always felt very special, cared about. Like I was the kid she wasn't supposed to have, but was really super psyched that she did. I was the only one that she breastfed. I was the first one in my family, even though I'm the youngest, to go to college, to the only one to go to grad school, to travel in Europe. Like there was a lot of firsts. So in a way I was the designated oldest child. Mm. If we're looking at sort of family system stuff, which, you know, I mean, I had enough therapy to sort of correct that decades later. Cause you know, that that's also a lot of work to be the designated oldest child. Um, But how I got into psychotherapy itself is that I discovered therapy personally when I was still in college. I stopped drinking when I was a senior in college, the last three months of my senior year, because I came from, I come from a big drinking family, a lot of alcoholism and addiction in my family. And so um, I had a really like awakening. I don't know if awakening is the right word, but it was an experience that I was drinking from a young age because my sisters were older. I always looked older. So, you know, from probably from the age of 12, I would say I was, you know, drinking like Nobody should be drinking at that age, probably. Um, And by the time I was in my senior year in college, I was in therapy for over a year. And I had a therapist who was like, hey, what you're describing is alcoholic behavior. Because I was blacking out. I was not, you know, you're not remembering. You were in all kinds of hot water. I I was in a relationship. But, you know, my boyfriend was mad at me about something. I couldn't remember what happened. And for me, I thought a lot of that stuff was normal because I do come from a big drinking family. So it wasn't like anyone in my sphere was like, wow, that's so weird, right? I'd be like, okay, so I remember until this point, then what happened? You know, my friends would tell me. But of course, the therapist did not think that was normal. And she basically gave me an ultimatum that either I sought help, um, at least, go to one 12-step meeting to see what it's all about and to consider stopping drinking or that she would terminate treatment Mm. with me. And I was like, dude, I didn't even know you could do that. Like, did my therapist break up with me? Wow. Okay. So I did. I went to a meeting in um, Syosset, Long Island, (laughs) the basement of a church. I know how stereotypical, but it's true. And I, you know, it was the 80s. Keep in mind, so I don't know, you guys, you can't see me, but if you could see me then, maybe I'll share a picture with you. You know, my hair is curly naturally and I had my hair permed and my hair was dyed red and my nails were out to here and so much makeup because, hey, that's what everyone was doing. 
but I, I have this image of myself with my like neon hoop earrings and my like <laughs> my my the kind of pants we wore at the time and the jelly shoes and all the things. <laughs> and I went into this this meeting and I had no idea what to expect because I knew literally knew nothing about addiction recovery, any of it. But I didn't want this therapist to break up with me because we've been doing such amazing work. And so I sat really close to the door. I was like, well, maybe, you know, if I need to run away from this cult, I'll, I'll be right here by the door. And everyone smoked, by the way. Young people, I know you found that hard to believe, but we mm-hmm. did. So I was smoking my Parliament 100s, you know, considerately by the door. And there was a woman who was similarly shellacked as I was, makeup, hair, or whatever. And she came over. She's about 10 years older than me. And she was like, oh, are you new? You know, here, want to get a cup of coffee? You know, whatever, yeah. being nice. And she was like, oh, you know, what brought you here? And I just said, you know, honestly, my therapist said if I didn't come, she would break up with me. So that was kind of, it was like not, not a great story. I know a lot of people have their bottom stories and mine was just sort of like, I was sort of forced. And then just to be polite, cause I didn't know, I didn't know the protocol or what you're supposed to do. I said to her, well, what, what brings you here? And she said, um, I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. And of course that changed my life. I, I mean, there's shivers like up and down my legs just hearing that. So I just want to take that in. Yeah. And I always think about that woman and how she was the, this angel who was generous enough to tell me that. I mean, I survived that meeting, right? I was holding back tears because I couldn't even. Part of what I knew is that I could have been her mm. so many times that her story could have been my story and the amount of gratitude. I have chills right now, head to toe. Mm. I still feel I could cry right now thinking about the generosity of her spirit because that moment I got back in my car, was driving back to campus and I just made um, a deal with the powers that be. Like, I get it. This is my second chance right now and I'm not going to blow it. Like I understand that that didn't have to be me for me to feel like to to learn the wisdom that hard-won wisdom that that poor woman experienced in that poor family who lost their child and so I stopped drinking and I was 21 I think so that now I'm in the world with my eyes very wide open I'm now turned on to therapy I'm now turned on to self-help everything I couldn't believe how would it how different it felt to be wide awake in my life? Because I really had never been, because I'd been using alcohol socially, but also to numb feelings. You know, my parents got divorced when I was 13. Like there, was, there were things. And alcohol was without a doubt a coping strategy, you know, with, with of course limit, limited returns, but, mm-hmm. right. but, it, but it is one. And so I had to learn how to feel, how to manage my feelings, how to articulate. And this also made me so aware of how limited I was when it came to sharing certain things. And, you know, I didn't know it then because I didn't have the language, but this was the beginning of my realization of what a boundary disaster I was. And that how I didn't know how to assert myself Honestly, directly, authentically, there was all of this covert communication and passive aggressive and all these things that I learned because this is how we survive. 
but the more therapy I had, and then, then, then if we go into the career, so then I was in a career that was different. I wasn't a therapist in the beginning of my career. I was a talent agent negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities. And I was totally sober in that business. Mm. So that also, I'm sure yeah, that was quite an experience. It took, I think it took the, you know, a lot of people thought it was like this sparkly, you know, this really amazing thing. Cause keep in mind, this was now the nineties. Right. And so supermodels were like goddesses. Like oh, this yeah. was the, the, you know, George Michael and the freedom and the, the, all the things, all the, all the things. So that was an interesting time to do that. But as I was in that business and getting healthier and healthier in my own personal therapy process, I definitely came to a realization like I be, I became too healthy to stay in that business because I couldn't change the business, which I tried, but it didn't work. And I was like, there's got to be something more um, satisfying or meaningful for me. I'm not anti, I still love entertainment. I'm not anti-entertainment, but in my life, I was like, this cannot be my dharma making supermodels richer. Like it just can't, there has to be something more. And in the end of that career, I was very... Like I couldn't deny any longer that my only interest was the mental health of my clients, getting people into eating disorder clinics, therapy, drug treatment clinics. I did not care about the movie deal, the Pantene deal, all the things that I should have been like, yeah, yeah, another one, you know, in the books for like some great negotiation. I just didn't care anymore. And so I was like, you should leave before you start really doing a shitty job. Like I was already on the borderline of doing a not great job because I was like, I got to get out of here. So I still ran the agency. It was running this bi-coastal talent agency, the New York division of it, actually, for Elite Modeling Agency. And um, I actually continued to do that the whole time that I was in grad school, somehow. Wow. I don't even know how now. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have told them that at the time, but that's what was happening. And then I graduated. And once I opened my own practice, I started seeing that this lack of boundaries, this inability to talk true, right, that I call it now, it was an epidemic because who I was attracting into my, my clientele were women who were very much like me, who were in, ambitious, who were successful, who were getting things done, but getting them done at the expense of themselves. So basically, that's probably enough background. <laughs> wow. So there's so much I want to ask you about. <laughs> so the first question is, I mean, you have this really beautiful story of how you came into the world and that you were so loved and so wanted. And also it was, it was a difficult thing to be considered the eldest child, but you were the youngest child. How much older were your sisters than you? I had the most space in between, but there really was, still wasn't that much for me and my sister, Kathy, who was closest to me in age. There's about two and a half years. Okay. And so... I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to skip ahead to when you were in college, because I find this so fascinating. What got you into therapy in the first place? Because it sounds like that therapist literally changed the course of your life. Without a doubt. Right? So what was the reason to go into therapy while you were in college? Let's go back to that. Yeah, there was, um, my school was on strike, the teachers at at my college. So there was a period of time where we didn't have classes to go to. And everything stopped. I was a cheerleader for all of my, my young life and into all through college as well. And I definitely think I would have been a major drug addict had I not been 
a cheerleader. Like I would have gotten in much more trouble in the way of my addiction personality. Mm-hmm. Sure. It, had I not had the structure that that provided for me in community, I'm such a, I'm such a group gal still. And I, for the first time in my life, I felt um, depressed where I'm very, I've always been a very um, positive and just like I wake up and I'm like, how lucky am I to like be alive <laughs> still? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I can't wait to have my coffee. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to go feed the birds. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to jump on my trampoline. Like even now, like those were all the thoughts I literally had today, right. <laughs> you know? And so it was such a stark, um, it, it was jarring to wake up and feel listless, to feel a lack of hope because we didn't know when school was going to come back. And I always loved school. I loved learning. I loved cheerleading. I loved my friends. I loved all of it. And of course, because there was no school, I was drinking more than ever, Mm. which of course is a depressant. So that was part of the impetus for me to initially get in. And of course, and, and that, that didn't last meaning the, once I started talking, it was like those feelings, because now I was identifying what was really going on because so much of my, my feverish activity in my life, of course, was a way of distracting myself from the feelings I didn't know how to process or didn't want to feel. So between the drinking and the being a very social and very active person, I always had a, you know, I was a serial monogamous. I always had a boy, a long-term boyfriend. <laughs> like there were, I loved so many people. I always had so many friends. I still have the same friends I had since Nixon was in office. Literally, I have the same friends I've had since since I was four. Um, But when none of that worked, when that didn't shift something for me, that's when I was like, they must have someone here. And and my family wasn't pro-therapy or anti-therapy. Like they didn't know about therapy, you know? just, you know, I'm a middle-class girl from New Jersey. Like that's, that's it. My parents are both from upstate New York and wouldn't have been like, I think we should call in a professional. Right. But I myself thought, well, there's gotta be someone who can help me. And I never had a lot of shame, which is interesting. I never, you know, my mother used to say kidding to me because I always used to, I never, when I was little, I never liked to wear clothes. I would always want to like run around and like just like my shorts when I was in like second grade, my mother's like, hi, put a tank top on. And she would kid around and say, you know, have you no shame or have you no modesty? One of those two things. And I grew up really feeling like I did not have a lot of shame around things. So me needing help at that moment, I, I didn't really feel ashamed. I felt curious, like, huh, I wonder if talking to this person will help you know? Right. That's amazing to have that insight when you're in college of all places. I mean, I know that when I was in college, you know, I actually did uh, an episode, a podcast episode, the one right before when ours uh, will be airing (laughs) um, about depression and my own struggles with depression. And the fact that when I was in college, I had no idea to really think about getting therapy. I didn't have that insight. Um, And so it's just, it's fascinating to me that you had that kind of insight to really think, oh, there's got to be someone here that can help me. I think that that's so important. And the fact that you also didn't have shame around it, because I know for me, you know, being first generation South Asian, um, there's a lot of stigma 
around mm-hmm. mental health and around getting therapy for anything. It doesn't matter, you know? Um, and so that's something that I think probably was subconsciously in my head. So maybe that's also the reason I never thought about it, you know? Sure. So that's fascinating. So what took you from then, I mean, to have that much insight and to have that such a powerful experience when you went to your first AA meeting, right? That you said literally changed your life. Did you not think about becoming a therapist at that moment? Or I mean, how did you get into the entertainment business? Like, tell me about that. It's like so random. (laughs) I mean, it really is. And it isn't right. I feel like I was meant to meet the people that I met. Of course. You know, I, I was actually in working in the garment center before I got into entertainment. And because I literally moved to New York the second that I could from, you know, I grew up in Jersey, but I was living in Long Island because that's where I went to college. And I met a friend. We became roommates. I was like, want to move to the city right now? She was like, yes. So we moved into like a studio apartment that we literally never saw during the daylight. Who, Who does that? We're so young. We don't know. So a studio, I was sleeping in a closet. And of course the place was dark as a cave, which for me, hating light all the time. I was like, this is perfect for me. My, my roommate was from Florida. She was so depressed. She was like, wait, so this place never gets sun. I'm like, I guess not, but okay. So in, in, I literally looked for a job and took the first job that I was offered as a receptionist in the garment center. Like I had no master plan at all. I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was like, wait, what, what, what are you doing? I was like, no, it's going to be great. Dad. They give us free lunch every day. He was like, uh, is that the criteria? (laughs) You took a job because it's going to give you free lunch. I was like, well, kind of a little bit. Anyway, I was in there for a period of time and I kept thinking, uh, I would every day I would get women's wear daily. And I was like, today is the day when I'm on the subway, going back to my place, I'm going to read women's wear daily. I literally not one time read it because I did not care about fashion or the garment center. I had no interest. And so then I was like, all right, well, what do you have an interest in? And I was like, always, I've been interested in entertainment. I read Interview Magazine, Vanity Fair, even Variety, like the trade mags long before I was in the industry. I don't know, just people's stories and entertainment was interesting, but I didn't think anyone could have a career doing that. Like that was just, I, I just was interested in that. Right. And then my college boyfriend said, oh my God, you should talk to one of our mutual friends. She's working at a talent agency. You'd be great at that. So I went in and talked to her and she was like, you know, I have someone here who's marrying Sting's road manager. So she's going on the road. We're having an opening. Do you want to come in and you could just call in sick to your place for like a week and then see if you like it? I was like, okay. Amazing like, first idea. of all, that, <laughs> it's like Holy not very nice to the other people, but still. <laughs> and I did that and quit my job and took that was how I ended up working at a place it was called Frontier Booking International and it was actually run by um you know the the drummer in the police was um Ian Stuart Copeland my boss's name was Ian Copeland he was a brother and then Miles Copeland was the other brother he owned IRS Records and their dad actually ran the CIA like such an interesting family and he started dating Courtney Cox when we were like it was all of these things happening we didn't know who Courtney Cox was going to become though obviously right um I think we booked her in the Dancing in the Dark Bruce Springsteen video video this is literally the late 80s early (laughs) 90s and it was nobody knew what they were doing. Everyone was young. So I learned 
in that job on, on my feet, but it was really a rock and roll agency. And I worked in the TV and film department. So we were really on our own where the people who really ran the place were in music. So our requirements were like, you have to go to concerts. So they would give us free tickets and you would literally, and then we would have after parties at our office, which was at 1776 Broadway. Like this was Mm -hmm. the time everyone did everything. Everyone's partying. I'm sober. So I'm not partying, but you know, people are smoking in the office. Like my boss was smoking weed at like 9am. Like this was an interesting, an interesting um, career, but then I moved from, you know, and then you, you, you work your way up. That was a small agency. I moved to a much bigger agency. Then after that, I moved to a much bigger agency. So, you know, that, that's always the way, but I kept thinking, right. I kept chasing that feeling like, oh, at the next agency, when I'm representing famous people, maybe that's when it's going to kick in. I'm going to feel the way I want to feel with this next big deal, this next more money, this next whatever. And that, of course, did not happen because when I got to what I guess would be considered for me the top of the heap, I was like, wow, that feeling I'm seeking, it's still not here. And then I had to decide, like, can I be poor again? Of course I could and not a problem. Um, can I not know? where I'm going to make money? Can I, can I start a business? And then the answer, I mean, I contemplated it for a while because also everyone thought my career was amazing, including my father. And so it made it hard to leave mm-hmm. because people were, and also I was good at it. So you're masterful at something and you're like, well, but that took one cl- class, uh, non-matriculating at NYU and an abnormal psych. And I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely, this is it for the rest of my life. I will, I cannot imagine that I will ever not be mesmerized by this, by the human mind, by helping people um, interact better, have less pain and more joy. And that was 24 years ago. That's amazing. I'm just taking it in. It's, it's, it's an amazing story. It's just, it's fascinating and it's, um, it's inspiring to hear you talk about it. So let me ask you this, because we're both clinicians. And I think it's really interesting. I know this is something I struggle with a lot. Do you ever feel it's difficult to walk the walk and like take your own advice? Especially let's, we can, let's, let's frame it in, within boundaries because that's mm-hmm. your specialty um, and what you're really known for, what you just wrote your new book on, Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free, which is a beautiful title. But how is it, you know, how is it to, how is it to sort of, um, you know, walk your own walk? And then I have a, a follow-up question, but I'm going to wait to ask you that. The way that I describe it is that this is a, a, a discipline. This is a practice, just like my meditation practice is a practice, just like me being physically healthy is a practice. It is a daily experience. So as you become a boundary boss, according to me, the way that I teach it, you get better and better at talking true. I mean, in the book, I give you an entire chapter of just scripts (laughs) that you can make your own, of course. But a lot of times we just need the framework for words. How, how, How will I assert how I feel? I'm worried the person will be mad. I'm worried this, I'm worried that. So very gentle and easy frameworks make it easier to do so. It doesn't mean that if you're someone who doesn't love a a rough confrontation, let's say, Mm -hmm. 
even when you're a boundary boss, even when you're masterful, you're not going to love a rough confrontation, but you will be able to have it on your own terms. You will be able to assert yourself even when you still feel afraid, even when it makes you uncomfortable. And so what we're really learning throughout this process, it's not like you you suddenly become someone who can't wait to like ball people out and like <laughs> tell everyone no, 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 and you're an idiot and fighting. It's it's not like that. You're still you, of course. You're just you in asserting. So for me, back to answering the actual question, mm-hmm. I am without a doubt a boundary boss. I am I need to be known very specifically, especially by the people in my life who matter, like my husband and my close friends. So that means that I am a very succinct communicator. Like, I don't want to just be vaguely understood, right? I really, I really need to be like accurately seen. And so that is worth it to me, having a hard conversation. Because I'm negotiating for my most authentic self, my truest self, and connection, real connection, deep intimacy to me is one of the most important things in my life. I want you to know who I am. When I'm writing a book, I wrote that book. Those were the words I wanted to say. I can't tell you how many times I edited that book and and had to go up against other people and other people saying, well, you know, the language or it's kind of written in this casual way, or I'm like, listen, Mm -hmm. this is how I want to say it. This is my book. This is what I want to say. I couldn't have done that 15 years ago. I would have given my power away. I would have thought, well, who am I to go up against the, you know, the, the editor that the publisher has assigned, the developmental editor, or this person or that person. And I can do it, of course, I did it respectfully, with kindness, lovingly. But you can always assert yourself with kindness. You can always assert yourself respectfully. But what you really learn, and for me, what what was required to really walk my talk was no more self-abandonment. No more keeping the peace at the expense of my own inner peace. And that used to be like a religion. Like it was like my religion was about keeping the peace, like as if it was my responsibility. And what what I was able to really get to in the book and in teaching this, it's like, I'm only responsible for my side of the street. And I used to think I was responsible for the world, the whole neighborhood, everyone's side of the street. I don't want you to make a mistake, so I'm going to jump in and center your problem on me. I don't want, I, your pain is causing me pain, so I don't want that. Like, there were so many things that I really thought I was, I was being loving, and yet through my own therapeutic process, I was able to discover it was more self-serving and more self-protective then I would like to have, I liked it better when I thought I was just a lot like Mother Teresa, you know? <laughs> save the world, save everybody. So, you know, that brings me to the, this question of how do you separate your stuff then from the client or the patient that's in front of you, right? Because you have that inclination of wanting to save everybody and being responsible. I know this is something that many clinicians struggle with. I struggle with it. 
you know, my son is in graduate school right now. He's getting a master's in counseling. So he is learning about all of this and it's really interesting to him. Um, he's fascinated by what you do. And so, you know, how do you, how do you separate that? How do you, and, and, you know, it's not just clinicians, but how do you, as just a human being in a relationship, separate your own stuff, your own shit Mm -hmm. from the person sitting across from you? Well, I'll do it in two, two phases because as a clinician, I had an amazing, still, still I'm close with her, amazing supervisor who because I opened a private practice right away, I hired someone, of course, with like decades of experience so that I could talk to them about, you know, wherever I was struggling with clients. That's what therapists do, as you know. Yes. Um, and she was so instrumental in me understanding the importance of having healthy boundaries with my clients and that I was doing them a disservice if I didn't have healthy boundaries from healthy financial boundaries, like clear, clean agreements to really realizing that it doesn't help them for me to solve their problem, quote unquote, right? That, that is a codependent need of mine. It was so much easier for me to not do that in my practice. It was way more challenging to learn this in my life. Sure. So, because by the time I opened my therapy practice, I was already already in my early thirties. So I'd had a lot of therapy, and that, like, I'd already done a lot of work on myself, and I'd already been very aware of boundary issues and my own codependency. Because that's really what we're talking about. Like, what is if we look at codependency? What is it? It's being overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes, the circumstances of the people in our life to the detriment of our own internal experience, our financial life, our physical life. Because listen, as mothers and lovers, we're, we're going to be invested in the people we love. Like that is having a relationship that's normal. But if there is an urgency, if something is happening to someone you love and you feel that urgency as if that problem, as if that circumstance is happening to you, you know that that is provoking a codependent response. You want your anxiety about their rough situation to stop. Yes. And so I want to fix you. I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to connect you with one of my colleagues. I'm going to do all these things for you because really I would like my own suffering around your dumpster fire of a life right now (laughs) to stop, you know? Right, right. And so it's really learning to separate that. It's quite literally, I mean, it's part of the question I asked you is how how do you separate? You just have to learn to identify what's yours and what's theirs and realize that there has to be a separation. Um, So, you know, this actually goes right into sort of what I wanted to really talk about with you. And of course, we've spent most of our time talking about other things, but that's okay. You know, in Ayurveda, there is a concept that toxins and, and toxins is very much a metaphor, right? For all the things that are coming into our human system, my mind, body, spirit, um, from every aspect of our life. And one of the key ones is relationships, you know, and I was binge listening to your podcast and, and, and just thinking, oh my gosh, this is, there's so much in alignment with what I am teaching also. Yes. And, you know, it's mental health month. It's May. Um, I think it would be really helpful to my listeners to understand the role of boundaries 
in relationships because relationships are, I find with every patient that I do a consultation with, every time I'm in a workshop, when I talk about this idea of toxins coming from every aspect of your, of your life and I say something about relationships, everyone's like, oh, a lot of people don't think about it that way. They don't right. think about the toxins that are coming in from the relationships and how that is affecting their health and how it's been manifesting as symptoms. That's literally what we talk about in Ayurveda. So let's talk about that, you know, relationships and boundaries. Here's the thing with the relationships and boundaries. For a relationship to be healthy, it must be boundaried, right? And so you'll have a lot of myths out there about real love needs, you know, has no boundaries, right? Real love is never having to say you're sorry. Like, no, none of those things are true. That's just in movies and on TV. In real life, right? We want one whole human to be connecting with another whole human so we can create something that is so magnificent that if we never came together, it would never exist in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like you complete me, the Jerry Maguire crap, like that just, it's not possible. And it's also such a burden. If we are seeking all of this validation and all of this, mm, we're, we're, we're looking to get our sense of self-worth from someone else, not only is it an impossible task and they will fail, but we will burden them by, by needing too much, you know? And, and that's on both. That's like you could, you could be in either position in a relationship. So the boundaries, which basically tell where, where do I end and where do you begin? Having healthy boundaries, and we look at all the areas, right? So we have physical boundaries, we have sexual boundaries, we have emotional boundaries, we have mental boundaries, we have material boundaries. Being clear in all of those areas, which I walk you through in the book, like what they are, what does it mean? What is a boundary violation in each one of those things? It's so important to realize what your rights are, what each person in a relationship, what are your boundary rights, basically? Because I think that there's so much confusion about that. The toxicity that you're talking about, a lot of times it's simply because we are taking on as empaths, as highly sensitive people, we are taking on the feelings of others unknowingly, unwittingly, not on purpose. It's just the way that we're wired or maybe we're not aware that we are a highly sensitive person. I wasn't when I was younger. I couldn't have stopped myself from taking on right. what was happening in a room. What was, I can, I can to this day in a restaurant and someone will walk in and I'll say to my husband, well, that guy who just walked in is totally violent. So I would love to just get our stuff to go and get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> and he's like, are you listening at all? I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I am. But I just felt yeah, that energy just basically punched me in the face and I don't want to be around it. Mm -hmm. These are all things that as you develop, you, you start to understand your own boundaries. So boundary, healthy boundaries in relationships start with inner boundaries, right? We call them internal boundaries, which is how you relate to yourself. So the most important thing is how you regard yourself, how you relate to yourself. Do you rest when you're tired? Do you care about how much you hydrate? Do you move your bod? Do you put limits on things with other people? Do you assert your preferences, your desires, your limits, your deal breakers? So in my estimation, that's what it means to have boundaries in a relationship is that you know 
your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers, right? Your non-negotiables. And you have the ability to communicate what those are when you so choose, concisely and transparently. That is being a boundary boss. Being masterful at boundaries means you must be an expert on yourself. And so many of us are not. And that is where I say the beginning is. It's not all out where a lot of a lot of our focus is on. Well, if Bob just didn't act that way and if my boss just wasn't a jerk and if my friend just didn't do this thing. No, it's not about them because the common denominator in your life is you. So the most empowered place to start and where I start in the book is with your relationship to yourself, you understanding your downloaded boundary blueprint, right? Why do you relate to boundaries the way that you do? You have a million good reasons, right? There's nothing wrong with you. We learned it from home, our society, country, culture, all of those things. And then role in the family system, how chaotic it was. Was there addiction? Was there abuse? Was there neglect? All of those things come together and create your boundary blueprint, which is an unconscious paradigm, which is how you relate to boundaries because you think it's the way you're supposed to, or you think it's the way the world is, or you think it's the way relationships are. And so one of the first things we're doing is saying, hey, this is a paradigm, but it's like an architectural blueprint for a house that someone else designed like a century ago. You can change it if it doesn't produce the results you want change that. So that's really what the process is of becoming a boundary boss is becoming aware, right? We go into the basement of your mind, which is your unconscious, open up a a bunch of boxes and go, oh, so I'm afraid to confront people because my mother was a people pleaser. I see. She thought it was rude if people were direct. So I wouldn't want to be perceived as rude. It makes sense. Right. right. So once you, once it makes more sense, it's so much easier to change something because you go, oh, but that's how it was for my mom. That doesn't mean it has to be for me. And I'm not saying I'm better than her. I'm different than her. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's my life. <laughs> right. And I want this skill and I didn't learn it at home, but you can learn it now, which is the good news. It's like learning a language, right? You wouldn't just expect to be fluent in a language. You would right. know you had to learn it, you know? So what do you, what would you say from your perspective? Because I think that, you know, like you said, awareness is the key. That's true for everything. And I always say the same thing in the work that I do is that the first step is becoming aware that there's an issue, right? What if you don't even realize that that's the problem? Like, how do you become aware? What's a, what's a clue? Maybe what are some clues that maybe this is the source of the toxins that are coming in is that you don't have the boundaries in your relationships. Um, Well, the first clue is think about your relationships and then dial into where you feel resentment. Mm. Right. Where, where are you constricted? Where do you feel put upon? Where do you feel dread? Where do you, who do you feel exhausted after you spend time with? This will, this literally becomes a GPS to go, okay, something is happening there. Either there's a need not being met, which means you're not potentially expressing the need or asking for what you want, or maybe you have and the person doesn't care, or maybe a boundary has been violated, but we can't call it a boundary violation if you've never expressly communicated it. So I I put people in categories like the boundary first timer (laughs) is someone that you've never said it to before. 
Yeah. The repeat offender is the one that you have said it to before and doesn't care. The boundary bully is someone who really wants to get their way, self-absorbed, blah, blah, blah. And then we have the ultimate in scary people when it comes to boundaries, which are the boundary destroyers. Hmm. That's like the, can be the, you know, cluster B personality disorders, from narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic, bipolar. Um, and it could just be super self-absorbed and demanding. And there's some people who have anger issues. Like there's, there's lots of um, reasons why people become um, like emotionally manipulative predators. But if you're someone who is an empath, is kind of leans towards codependency as a highly sensitive person, mm-hmm. it, which means you have bad boundaries, meaning they're too porous, they're too malleable. Right. You will become um, such a target. Right. Because the cracked pot will always find the cracked lid. Yes. And I can tell you, it's, it's interesting with predators. They know mm-hmm. if you have an abuse background, they sense it. It's like a nut. You don't even have to communicate it, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, they can sense it a mile away. It's it's this sixth sense they literally have. And if you don't have the defenses up and understand how to how to um, protect yourself from that, you are very vulnerable for sure. Oh my gosh, so much to talk about, and we have like five minutes left. So I'm gonna. Um, <laughs> I think the the most important thing that you just said, you said so many important things was that the the feelings of resentment and and this awareness of, you know, thinking about your relationships. I just want to click into that of, of thinking about relationships and then becoming aware of how you're feeling in your your mind, your body, right? How are you feeling? Are you feeling constricted? Are you feeling open? You know, those are indications mm-hmm. of do I need to start thinking about, am, am I, do I have boundaries with this person? Right. Right. That's that, kind that's of what exactly I was hearing right. from you. That's the beginning. But we also, one more thing that for people yeah. who are like, I don't know, I, I don't know right. where I am. I'm confused. It's overwhelming. I want you to quickly look at your relationship to saying no. Like mm-hmm. how often do you say yes when you want to say no? And really think about that, where you feel obligated, where you're sort of driven by guilt or fear of rejection or fear of being sort of excommunicated from the crew, you know, like we have all of these fears. And I will ask you to do a very simple, um, it's kind of like a, like a four-day experiment where instead of giving anyone an insta yes, no insta yeses, you will I'll give you a couple of things you can say instead. You're just going to buy time. Mm. No more committing yourself without giving yourself the luxury of time. Someone else telling you that, you know, they need an answer by this thing. If anyone says to me, hey, I'm calling you about this thing, and I know it's last minute, but I need an answer by three. Now, if it's something, it's one thing. If it's like, you know, do you want to be on Super Soul Sunday? Well, sure, I don't need till three. (laughs) But most things, you know what, pal? Poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency for me. So if you need an answer by three, the answer is no, because I don't make any snap decisions, not for you, not for anybody. I need at least one day to think about it, to confer with my husband, my friend, whoever. Right. Like, but again, it's so easy to get caught up in someone else's reality because people who are manipulative are very good at it, where they're like, but I have to know. Right. Okay. Well, then it's no. If you have to know, then it's, then it's a no. But for people who are, it's hard to say no, and I was that, so I understand this. 
if you can say, oh, hey, I need to check with my partner, my roommate, my friend, whatever. So I'll get back to you tomorrow. You can always say, thank you for thinking of me. I'll let you know by the end of the week. Um, you can always say, maybe. Literally. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure yet what I'm doing that week. So I'm, I'm going to think about it or let me check my calendar. But take a few of these things and put them in your hip pocket. And know that you don't owe anyone an instant answer. If the house is not on fire and it's not a fireman <laughs> saying, do you want to leave? You don't know, oh, anyone, an instant yes. Yeah. And other people pressuring you because they know they can is a lot of what's happening. So when you start to just buy time, what you're going to find is that it is so much easier to say no when you haven't already said yes. Because what happens is when we say yes and we want to say no, A, we end up bitter because we're pissed. Like, and then we're, then we're really mad at like Betty. Like she's so nervy. She's the hell she's so entitled, right? Like we can't wait to bad mouth the crap out of Betty to somebody. Right. Simply because we couldn't say no. It's funny. I was talking to Kate, you know, Kate Northrup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we were talking the other day about, we were doing some live together and she was like, all right, I want to, I want to talk about something. I was like, okay. And she tells a story. I didn't remember it all, but it was like 15 years ago, we were in the West village. And she's like, I was going off on this person asking me to do something for them. And I had done so much for them already. And for 15 blocks here, we're walking and I'm just like, I just can't believe her. She's just so nervy. And I, who does that? Who raised her? Why is she like that? All the things. Yeah. And she's like, and then we got to the restaurant and you said, yeah, Kate, she's got some nerve putting you in the position to have to say no. How about just saying no? Oh, and she yeah. was like, oh, oh. my God. You're so right. <laughs> Why do I just say no? I'm like, because you're afraid. But all that energy you just expended on bitching about this person. Right. And you could just say, I've actually done what I can. I cannot do anymore. Right. Right. I hope, you know, you appreciate what I've done or whatever it is. So anyway, yeah. for the listeners, your two things you're going to do to check in as to the state of your boundaries right now. And I also have a gift for your listeners, which will oh. help as well. So the first thing is you're going to check in and, and actually in this, this gift, I believe I'm, I have a uh, relationship inventory, which will help. And we're checking, Hey, where am I? Where am I feeling resentment? Like who do, who do I feel resentful towards that will help you identify where you might need a boundary and you're going to stop the insta. Yes. You're going to do four straight days of not instantly agreeing to anything. You're going to give yourself 24 hours. And I think you're going to see that you will feel so much lighter and so much less constricted and so much less angry than you may feel right now. For more of this, you can go to boundarybossbook.com and get the book or buy it anywhere because it's everywhere. But I have a lot of um, bonuses Amazing. at the boundarybossbook.com website. And hold on, what am I giving you? Oh, I'm giving you, it's boundaries and codependency. Amazing. Amazing. We'll make sure that that's linked in the show notes. Can I just do a speed round with you? Of course. Of some cool, please. fun questions that I always like to do. And, you know, I'm just telling you now, I have a whole list of questions here. So I think we're going to have to do another episode. So I think just so. Just put so. that out there. Um, okay. <laughs> let's do this fun speed round. Okay. Okay. So the first question is well, complete this sentence. Wellness is my birthright. Beautiful. What is one myth about mental health that we need to change? That it's only when you're in a crisis that you need it. Mm -hmm. Like we need preventative 
mental health. It's valuable. We need to be proactive. Yeah, absolutely. We need to be proactive with everything with our health, but especially our mental health. Yeah. And the boundaries is a perfect way to start. Yep. Yeah. What is something that people often get wrong about you? <laughs> people think I'm, um, sometimes people think I'm unapproachable because I have a public platform. Mm. And I'm like, I'm, that's I'm the most approachable, most accessible, most normal person ever, I think. I mean, not normal, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you are. You are. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. That's been my <laughs> complete experience with you. Um, what is something that most people don't know about you that you want to share with us? Um, I jumped out of a plane once. You did? I did. And it was completely terrifying. And P.S. I would never do it again, but I did do it because I have a crazy fear of heights. And I thought, well, this doesn't cure it, but you know what? It didn't cure it, <laughs> oh my but God. I did take up the trapeze and that, that actually did kind of cure it. But. Amazing. Amazing. I don't know that I could jump out of an airplane. I've been dared to do that by my younger sister, who, you know, um, but of course <laughs> dare me to do that. I don't know that I'm going to take her up on it. Um, what is one thing that you're really excited about right now? Just that people are really into talking about boundaries and that the book is out and that I'm getting so much feedback about people yeah. feeling that it's accessible and that they can do it. And that just reading it is shifting their mindset. It just makes me so happy because that is my dharma is to help as many people as possible get out of their own way, like, like lessen their own suffering from becoming empowered. So that's, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I'm excited too. I'm, I'm actually tearing up listening to you because it's, it's actually what I feel about, you know, the work that I'm doing too. So I really identify with that. Thank you for putting that into words for me. Um, what is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? My mother survived cancer during COVID and she is mm -hmm. 83 and cancer free and living back at her house because she literally moved in with us while she was getting better. And I'm just so grateful because I feel like she's got a couple of more years and she's the best. Amazing. What book is on your nightstand right now? Oh my God. <laughs> I have so many books on my nightstand right now. Oh my God, <laughs> to, to read. But you know, when you're promoting your own book, you're not reading anything. Yeah. So what is next on my, my list? What's it called? Uh, Professional Troublemaker by Lovey. Yeah, I've heard really good things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard really good things too. So I'm excited. She's going to, yeah, I'm going to interview her. So I want to read that book before I interview her. Amazing, amazing. Mm -hmm. um, what's a song that you're listening to on repeat right now? <laughs> it, it, it's a guided but it's not guided but it's like i can't even explain it it's track number eight in, in my phone <laughs> and it's a 23 minute um it's something actually that wayne dyer told me about years ago and it's a it's a healing sound meditation that's 22 minutes long and then i do probably every third meditation day like my husband doesn't like sound so i'll put my you know he likes to just do the silent meditation repeating the mantra yep and I do too, but sometimes I like this. So anyway, I wish I could tell, maybe by the time this comes out, I could find out the name of Amazing, it. Amazing, <laughs> yeah. And if, you, and if you do, we'll link it in the show notes so everybody yeah. can find out what it is you're talking about. Um, okay, I have uh, this next question for me is one that I always like to ask. I'm from Chicago and um, have ties to President Obama through the University of Chicago and some other ties. And there's a question he always asks people, which is to as a community organizer, but also, you know, with his fellows, 
Describe your world as it is and how you'd like it to be. My world as it is, is um, one that is changing and transforming and needs so much changing and transforming with everything that's gone on in the U.S. in the last year and a half, two years, or 450 years, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, How I would like it to be is a lot of those things changed and in place. Uh, Mental health being available really in um, an equal way, which it isn't now. Um, Like good mental health being available to everyone. Preventative mental health being a regular conversation that we have. Um, Dealing with how traumatized people are in our society and actually providing services Mm -hmm. for we're all traumatized, but but for people who are unduly traumatized, folks of color, like all the the everyone who has been involved with, um, really the what's been happening is there has been so much violence in the past year and a half that it's there's no way for anyone to have gotten away unscathed unless you didn't listen or read anything or watch anything. Um, we just need to heal, and so I'd like to see more collaboration, more cooperation, but more equity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it's really important. And so this feels like a really good place for us to end. So if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? Take responsibility for mm-hmm. myself. Like we all must, because that, that is the first, like you said, awareness. But then we must do something with that awareness. So to catalyze healing, it's like, take responsibility, take action, you know? Mm -hmm. Thank you. It has been an honor to talk to you. Oh, thanks, my friend. It was so much fun. Then we'll do it again. (laughs) If you love this podcast, and I so hope you did, please subscribe. That way you'll get real-time updates anytime I post a new episode. And if you're feeling really inspired, please leave a review so that others can find this podcast more easily. If you want to learn more, visit me on the interwebs at avantikumarsingh.com and you can subscribe to my newsletter where I send exclusive invites to my events, special announcements, and give you more self-healing tools and tips. And if you want to hang out even more with me, I spend most of my time on Instagram You can find me at Avanti Kumar Singh, and we can connect more there. Until next time, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing, because healing starts within.